I'm David Manilow, and welcome to The Dining Table. This week, we're going to explore the sweeter side of Chicago. With Valentine's Day coming up, I'll have alternative ideas that combine shopping and dining. Plus, the Wheeling Dispensary is super high on cupcakes. Ali Maradia has more. And speaking of baking, I'll talk with Rich Labriola about how he became Chicago's biggest breadwinner. My biggest thing that happened in 1996 or 7 is I took a bread class and learned how to make sourdough. And that really changed what, what my business was because the only person doing artisan breads was Corner Bakery. That's all coming up next on The Dining Table. Valentine's Day is coming up and uh, a lot of people take it super seriously. Others ignore it altogether. I always find that it's filled with a lot of pressure to make hard to find dinner reservations, to shop for a gift. So I'm gonna suggest a little bit of a fusion three lunch places in the Gold Coast, each surrounded by shopping opportunities. The first one is Le Colonial. Le Colonial opened in the early 90s on Rush Street, and it was a go-to place. It was really, really lovely. It is reminiscent of Saigon in the 1920s, so they have an elevated Vietnamese menu, but they moved over to the heart of the Oak Street shopping district on the second floor, and they killed it. I was a little dubious when they moved, but it's a really, really splendid way to spend lunch or dinner. They have a whole snapper, they have pho, they have lotus root salad that is great, carpaccio salad, all kinds of different things, and really, really interesting Asian-inspired cocktails. And I will say one thing about drinking during Valentine's Day, it can lead to some expensive jewelry buying decisions, so just beware. The next place is a little bit east at 200 East Chestnut, and it's called Space 519. It's a unique space because it's an actual store that within the store is the space lunchroom that has great salads, great sandwiches, really good service, but really fine stuff. And you're surrounded by, I must say, women's clothes and jewelry and things like that. So you're right in the heart. If you wanna eat and shop, that's your spot. Finally, uh, Nomi in the Park Hyatt Hotel. I went there for lunch towards the end of restaurant week. And that is a super civilized spot. I mean, you forget what it's like to have servers during lunch in suits and unbelievable attentive service. When we were there, we had sushi, artichoke crepe fritter, Amish chicken, really elevated cuisine. But it's something to consider just for the experience. And if you want none of that, go across the street to Ralph's, new coffee shop adjacent to the Ralph Lauren store and have a cup of coffee, gaze into your loved one's eyes, and have a nice Valentine's Day. Crane's food and restaurant reporter, Ali Marati, joins me now, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, some interesting things in the world of food and pot. Hey, Ali. Hey, David. I'm excited to be here. Excited <laughs> to talk about this topic. Uh, what you got? So the Chicago restaurant group that runs Westtown Bakery is teaming up with a new marijuana dispensary in Wheeling, part bakery and cafe, part marijuana shop. And this is really a first of its kind situation, right? Because we have, you know, a little bit over 100 dispensaries in the state right now, and they're all very transactional, right? You go in, you get your weed, you leave. A lot of times you're ordering online, even because of the pandemic processes that were developed. So what this is going to be, it's going to be called OK Cannabis. And it's sort of this new iteration of pot shops, essentially. And their thesis is that 
you know, as more and more of these open, which they're going to, we've just got a whole new, um, last year, they finally gave out the licenses to open new shops, new marijuana shops, um, that you're going to have to start differentiating yourself. And so basically these guys are trying to do it, um, you know, with food and cocktails, there'll be sandwiches, pastries, dark matter, coffee, et cetera. Are these pot infused pastries, for instance? Great question. No, they're not. That is illegal. They don't have a license to do that. So it's going to be kind of two separate things, right? So you'll walk in, you'll have your cafe. There's going to be a big patio outside. And then over here in the side is going to be the window where you go and buy your marijuana from. Ah. Yeah. So the idea is instead of having a waiting room, which now at a lot of the dispensaries, you know, you go in, you give your name, you got to wait to be let in to the chamber. You got to show your ID 18 times, you know. (laughs) Instead of having a waiting room and having it almost like a doctor's office type feel, it's sit down and have coffee while you wait, you know, for your cannabis order to be filled. Or I think the other goal is to just get people coming into the shop frequently, kind of normalize it, kind of get revenue stream coming in another way besides the marijuana. So it's an interesting concept for sure. Sure. Makes sense. So I, I have more questions. Throw them at me because I do not I do not frequent the uh, cannabis places very okay. So we we should say first that I did cover the legalization of marijuana when I was at the Chicago Tribune, which is why I'm an expert on this. Okay. <laughs> so this is a fun story for me to write because it was sort of a blending, you know, like a past life regression situation, gotcha. a blending of my beats. Are you allowed to, in, in where we stand now, go into this pot shop, buy some pot, consume the pot? And then stay there and eat your pastries or your sandwiches? So that's another great question. No, there's no consumption at this uh, location. The consumption lounges, we're not seeing very many of those yet in the state. And that kind of comes down to, you know, it's like a jurisdictional thing, you know. So if wheeling allows it, eventually maybe they could. But I'm not exactly sure what their plans are on that. Um, But for now, no consumption. No marijuana in the pastries that are being sold. All that is separate. Think of it as a retail store, right? Where you can come in and you buy your weed, but you can also sit down and eat. So I don't know, like if you think about a brewery where you go in and you buy a beer there, you know, maybe buy a six pack to take home with you, but you're also going to sit down and have, you know, a pint or whatever. So it's kind of like that situation. So uh, here's my question. So if I owned a, you know, stand up comedy place, movie theater, legitimate theater, whatever. Why wouldn't I, if it's legal, be able to have people consume cannabis right before they go in? Because I got to tell you. So they're laughing extra hard. I would think that I would, (laughs) anybody would be funny at that stand up at Zany's. I'm sure they're funny anyway, but I got to believe they're funnier if that was an option. Totally. Another great question. And I think we, you know, in years down the line, we may get there eventually. You know, the Illinois marijuana world is pretty highly regulated. And if we look at the history of it, it explains why. And it started out in the medical world. So it was very, very strict in the early days of medical. I think it was 2015, you know, back in these days, 2014, 
where it was first legalized here and everything was super strict, right? There were only so many growers allowed in the state. There were only so many sellers allowed in the state. The growers are all over the state because, you know, they wanted to make sure they split them up and only had one per Illinois police district because they thought there were going to be all of these crime issues associated with where the pot was grown. That did not pan out. So then in 2020, we saw the legalization of recreational marijuana. And Illinois was really one of the first states besides out west. So kind of in the east and the Midwest, we set this trend of we did it through a law. Right. It wasn't people voting on it. It was a law that was passed. And so there were all these rules written into the law about, you know, how recreational sales were going to go, how much you could buy, where you could buy, et cetera. And right when they all kind of came online in 2020, pre-pandemic, right? This is like January 1st, 2020, just the medical locations were able to flip and also sell recreational. And then those guys were given licenses to open additional locations. So up until now, we really had the same people operating the marijuana industry in Illinois for years. You know, it, people have come in from out of states and, and bought up, you know, the licenses there. And so we do have different owners and operators coming in and out. But largely, it's kind of been the same footprint. So now when we get these new guys coming online, they're going to have these different models and they may start getting into consumption lounges. We may see more getting into food, all this kind of stuff that is going on out West already, right? Like Illinois is behind when you look at the markets out West, huh. but we're ahead compared to, you know, other states like New York that has recently legalized recreational weed. So it's a really interesting spot where we're at here in Illinois. And a lot of states are still watching what we're doing. Is it still cash only? Well, sort of, right? So you can pay. (laughs) (laughs) The long answer is (laughs) that you can pay cash. A lot of places will take debit card now or they'll have ATMs there Uh, because it's still federally illegal. We are not going to see a lot of credit card processors getting involved here. And why do you think wheeling? Why is Wheeling the spot to do this? Yeah, great question. So I talked to them about this. So it's 50-50 group is basically running, you know, the food and they're the landlords. And then you also have Amaya Pawar, who was the former alderman, and he's on this license as well. And Amaya and then Scott Weiner, who is, you know, the head of 50-50 group, they both have these ties to Wheeling. Like they both work there in high school on the sort of restaurant row there. You know, Amaya said he was like a valet at one of the restaurants. So they're really into this kind of area, but it's also a really high traffic location where they're at. And then additionally, Chicago, the city of Chicago, which you would think, why not be in the city of Chicago, right? Their rules around marijuana dispensaries are a lot stricter than the suburbs. The suburbs have been a lot more friendly to these businesses that are opening. Interesting. Well, I can only leave you with this. I did spend some time living in the North Shore in my 30s, and every single guy that I knew uh, smoked pot in their garage back then. So it's like maybe it's very friendly out in Wheeling, and maybe it's maybe just that something, has something to do with it too. <laughs> All right, Allie, that was really, really informative and interesting. Yeah, thank you for uh, letting me talk about my former beat. It's been fun. And I think we'll watch this trend continue. So thanks so much. Yeah, talk to you soon. Joining me now is Rich Labriola, self-described chief doughboy at Labriola, Stan's Donuts, others. You've been in the dough business for a long time. Pizza, bread, donuts. And the first thing I want to go over is... It's called Stan's Donuts. It's not called Rich's Donuts because you got smitten with Stan's Donuts in Westwood section of LA 
run by the iconic Stan Berman, and I think it opened in 1960. So how did that whole deal and relationship come about? It was so ironic that one day I was watching a travel show with the best donut shops across America. And it was 10 people, um, and I just saw Stan and called him. I think his slimline phone on the wall reminded me of my dad, so I I, I, uh, I called him and... You know, it's, it was funny because he didn't take it seriously because a lot of people call him and say, hey, I want to open a donut shop. You know, people who are not in the food business and don't don't really understand what it takes. Um, so we did that for a couple of years. And, you know, it, it was good that it took so long because it, it, it changed from, you know, doing a show like a Krispy Kreme to just being a straightforward coffee and donut shop. I think, you know, what sets us apart besides our great donuts is a full coffee program that we're committed to. And so Stan's was a little 300 square foot shop that became iconic because of Stan. Stan's got this big personality that, you know, uh, I have when I'm drinking, but I don't when I'm not. So, and I don't drink that much. So uh, I knew that I couldn't be the guy there every day. It wasn't, wasn't what I wanted. So we had to make the best, the best products and, you know, that the city has seen. So I think we, we have done that. And, and do you think it was partly, I mean, you did call it stands, right? And people in Chicago where you have now several stands don't really know Stan from L.A. Do you think it was partly kind of because it's genuine and authentic and a little bit of a throwback and that's what you were trying to accomplish? I do. I do because people said, you know, why don't you just name it yourself? And I said, well, I think, you know, it could have done well uh, myself. And years later, I think right now at this point in time, it wouldn't have mattered because I think we've we've made our place. But I think they like the connection of, you know, Two bakers getting together. Uh, my history is in donuts. I always like to to do things where there is a reason to do them. Is you know there's history behind you know why why did Artisan Baker go into donuts? I mean you don't need to explain to people, but better that you do. And so um, I just thought the story was great. He gave us a lot of ideas, and you know we took some of his knowledge and we tweaked it ourselves. Um, but really, you know, in the end, it, the ideas came from, from his shop. And um, the Stan's connection and the Rich Labriol connection, I think, worked worked pretty well. For sure. And so you started with one in Wicker Park, right? Yes. And then how many do you have now? We have 15. Um, we also, Mariano's is doing some some refreshes and putting some in there. They, they really love the Stan's brand. I mean, uh, it's amazing how much they love it. Um, and we're opening three next year and uh, at least three the year after COVID kind of got you know, screwed us up a little bit. We opened a couple stories during COVID, but the plan just really went haywire. You know, we don't know what's coming next. So I admire people who create brands that like everybody knows. And this is less than 10 years, right? I'm for sure it stands. I even forget how hard it is to really build a brand. I mean, you know, it took me so long in the bread business. And I think stands is, it's a different type of uh, shop, but it's a bigger brand than Labriola Baking ever was. So already, you know, mm-hmm. which is fine uh, because I think it's more retail focused. Labriola was more all the chefs knew us and not the public. Um, and this is this is the opposite. So um, either way, it's uh, it's great uh, to be known. <laughs> well, but part of it is I think I mean you're in you're in well trafficked locations. And the signage is kind of quaint and people kind of, I'm sure it draws people in. And my main question is like, what makes a great donut? You know, it's funny because fermentation makes great bread and fermentation makes great um, yeast donuts, of course. But then you've got cake and old fashioned. So that is a question in the beginning that I asked myself many times. Okay, you know, I mean, there's no secret here. I don't care what every donut baker in the country tells you. We all use a mix that comes from a bag. You know, because it's just a lot easier. Now, that being said, 
what you do after that is what makes us different. You know, we add, you know, we add more things to it. We use a buttermilk old fashioned that we put buttermilk into. Um, we put more vanilla into, we put um, a little bit of uh, butter, butter into it. And so all those things add up to a great donut. I mean, our yeast donut, we mix it kind of like I used to mix my ciabatta dough. It's got multiple stages. It's long fermentation. But not everybody likes yeast donuts. People like cake donuts. And so same with the cake donut. A little bit of vanilla, a little bit of different um, flavors, and, and that's what makes it, you know, our icings, you know, I'll have vanilla. I'll have, you know, chocolate to the point when someone gets mad at us in the summertime because it's melted, I'm like, well, there's a lot of chocolate in there, uh, and that's why it melts. Um, and so those those are differentiations. And I mean, you can open a donut store tomorrow, you know, and, and buy all your stuff, and, and it'll be good, but it won't be what we do. Um, and that's why we we haven't gone out of Chicago yet because what we do is very specialized, and I don't want to dumb it down to go to another city. So, right, but I mean, you're, you've been based on quality and quality ingredients forever yeah it's you know, all those mixes are new to me because we never used them in my other bakery we always did everything from scratch but donut there's so many components that even though we have great bakers if you have to mix all these minute numbers you're going to end up with mistakes and so that's where the mixes um, come into play and that's why mixes are so popular and you know, there's a lot of donut chains that are based on bags of mixes and buckets of icing um, we're just not one of them well i will say that i i am a cake donut guy and I didn't even know I was a cake donut guy because I'd just been going to Dinkles forever. Oh, okay. I know they closed recently, but I've always been like, just give me some, give me cake donut with chocolate uh, icing. I'm like, I'm good to go. I had a stands this morning, 730. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I tried both the regular cake with uh, chocolate and the gluten-free. Not, not exactly the same, but both really good. We, you know, again, we, even with the, the, the gluten-free mix, we buy a really good mix because there's a lot of components in there you don't want to be measuring minute amounts of. So we buy a really nice, expensive mix, and it's it's a good donut. I mean, some people wouldn't even know it's it's gluten free. It's very good, and that's beyond no, my I didn't know you know my security no, clearance because I'm not good at you know when we when I had my bakery we we dismissed the whole gluten free phase because it didn't taste good at the time. They've gotten better at it, but it's still sure. you know we we just didn't it wasn't what we were going to do, um, and so but gluten free with donuts. It's a little easier because you've got sugar, you've got fat, um, things like that. So, I mean, it's they're, they're like artisan donuts, and you must have fun coming up with kind of the flavors and the combos. You know, I really do. It's like sometimes, you know, I love to eat, obviously, and sometimes I'll go and buy ice cream just because I say it's R&D, but I really just want ice cream. Uh, but it is because, <laughs> um, you know, when you the, – the connection to a new donut is not direct. It's not, oh, uh, I like chocolate and I like, you know um, – uh, cake and, and I like sprinkles. It's just it goes around in circles. You know, I, I've gotten ideas from candy. Uh, we do a pocket which is filled with uh, Nutella or filled with Biscoff. And I even tried one that was filled with a Hostess cupcake that was good. Ooh. And it was really good. We haven't done it yet. Um, hopefully nobody steals the idea now. So, <laughs> but it was good. And yeah, you know, even the latest donut we have was derived from many different factors. And the, the, the biggest problem is is the one donut we have going on right now. I was sure that that donut was going to taste great with cannoli cream. I, we, I waited. I didn't even try it for three months. And then we tried it a couple of weeks ago, and, like, this doesn't work at all. Uh, and it was, you know, it's, it's defeating, and then you, your mind starts going around. My mind's like the uh, the lottery drawing where all these things are flying around, and you got to wait till one pops out. And it, you know, sometimes it's fast, and sometimes it's not. Um, but it worked out very well, you know, uh, this one. 
I think there's a lot of people listening that like say, how do I get into the Stan's Donuts R&D department, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like, where, where, where do I sign up? Yeah, I think, I think that's probably a good, uh, a good PR move because we, we love different ideas. I mean, we, we, we crave different ideas. You know, you want your staples, but you got to have something special for people to come in. Because you can't ask someone to come in every day and buy a donut. That's why we have a coffee program, I mean, and a breakfast program. So, But that's a good point. And I was going to pivot into it. It's like a time of inflation. And so even donuts aren't cheap these days. No, no, they're not. They're not. And so that's why, you know, our, we're at the higher end. And we, we have to make sure even more than everybody else that, that we maintain our quality because you know, if you used to go to stands three times a month and you only go two now, it's got to be worth it. I mean, it's funny because when the donut shortening changed a few years ago, um, they got rid of trans fat. Sales dropped off, and I, I just couldn't figure out why. But everybody had the same problem. is The products didn't taste as good. And so if you're going to, you know, have something that's calorie-rich, if it's not enjoyable, then why bother? And so thankfully they came out with some other shortenings that are uh, pretty good, uh, close to the trans fat. And... Uh, I think the, you know, the, the flavor of donuts is, is almost to what it used to be. You know, I started at the beginning talking about a little bit of history, just very broadly, you know, pizza, bread, and now donuts. But you just must have persevered like crazy to get to the place where you are now. I mean, give us a, give us a little taste <laughs> of like your history. <laughs> I like that word persevered because, yes, I made a ton of mistakes and went through a lot of uh, mental anguish. You know, when I was nine years old, I used to make pizzas with my dad. I could remember standing over the dough mixer wondering, you know, well, this is no life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> at nine years old, I'm like, this is a terrible thing to be doing at eight o'clock at night. I think, you know, I, I think they, the child labor laws, they broke all of them. Um, and so, uh, and then, you know, then look up, look what I ended up doing. And so stand over a mixer for 18 hours a day. And so, yeah, in the beginning, you know, I distributed for a bread bakery, my I'll try and shorten the story. My my mom used to cook for my uncle uh, when he'd have events, and he brought some bread over from Casa Nostra Bakery. I mean, this is 1989 or 90, and you know he brought bread just as a you know just to be nice. And we I tried it. I thought it was stale at first, but it was just really hard, and it was really good. Um, and you know I said, hey, where can I get that bread? He's like, oh, I'll get it for you. And I'm like, because he couldn't tell me where he got it. And then. Uh, um, over time, you know, he introduced me to the owner, and they didn't distribute. I still lived in Blue Island. They didn't distribute to the south suburbs. And so um, uh, at a time when Commonwealth Edison, you know, told me they didn't need my services anymore <laughs> because they fired me, <laughs> it was devastating at the time, but it really was the best thing. And so I started a bread distributorship, and after three years, I went into my own bakery in 1993. And then I didn't know how to bake. I hired a baker, and he didn't know how to bake very well. And so... Now, you know, it's what do you do because you've got this business. And it, it, back then it was 10,000 square feet and, and all the money I had in the world. But, you know, every business owner goes through this. You, you start out and then you run into things you never could have imagined you could run into. You know, I hate the word pivot, but you got to figure out how to pivot. My biggest thing that happened in 1996 or 7 is I took a bread class um, in San Francisco and learned how to make sourdough. Um, Steve Sullivan from Acme Bakery was the instructor and uh, you know, he's one of the most famous bread bakers in the country at the time and still still is. And that really changed what, what my business was because the only person doing artisan breads was Corner Bakery. So I learned how to make four or five breads. The one bread that I really liked, I took it, I mastered it, and my first customer for it was Spago, actually, uh, when it was in Chicago. After that, it just it set off you know a, a path of growth. 
that led to, you know, the size of our bakery when I sold it. And that was what I, I knew how to do best was bread. And I mastered it because I worked hard at it. And then the sales came after. Once you get a reputation, you know, in 1997, you walk in the door and nobody knows who you are. And, you know, 2010, everybody, you know, wants your bread. So That's great. We have something in common. So Spago, when I started Check Plays, Amanda Puck was the you know, GM at Spago. And so we used to have all of our meetings at Spago. And not only that, if you were ever stumbled across an old Check Please episode in Chicago, I brought a digital audio recorder and I put it under a table at Spago and recorded all the natural restaurant noise oh, wow. from Spago. So if you listen to <laughs> the show and you hear like things like sound like, like when the people in the studio are at a table and it sounds like they're in a restaurant, it's all Spago background. It's really cool. I've not noticed. <laughs> so, so back in the back in the day, <laughs> we we're going going the way back machine. Well, you know, it sounds to me though like, you know, we talk about perseverance, but it's like it's got to be a certain amount of passion and quality and hard work. And I think for you, I've heard you mention this a couple times. It's almost like a little nostalgia that made you want to go into this business. Um, yeah, you know, it, the connection um, for some reason is I, I've never been a chef or never wanted to be a chef, but I always felt connected to food somehow and you know bread was the i think the perfect vehicle for that mm -hmm. you know i retain nothing from from making pizza dough at nine years old the fact that i ended up in in bread was one thing the fact that i really learned to love to do it was a whole nother thing um and you know my mom cooked a lot but the funny thing is my mom never baked bread <laughs> she baked everything else but not bread so it's ironic i never learned how to cook what she did i never cared to learn you know but over years of talking to chefs and, and listening you know, I, I learned how to combine things with bread that really work together very well. Right. You know, I learned about food that way, even though I'm a simple eater and I, I, I don't eat, I don't go, I don't veer off center much at all, but I still know how things work together and what doesn't work together. I don't know if we're having a renaissance in bakers in this town, or maybe it's the first time, but you have like publican quality bread. Mindy's is doing some interesting things mm -hmm. and you're, I, you're, you're, you've been doing it for a long time, but I think people have more, more options than they've had in the past for a real kind of artisan quality stuff. Yeah, you know, if for years it was it's very hard in Chicago to have a um, an artisan retail bakery. Um, for years they've opened, they've been great, they've closed. It's better, hopefully, the public you know patronizes because what happens is everybody wants this great bread. You go to San Francisco, every corner has a great bakery because the area supports it. And I'm not saying Chicago isn't supportive. I just don't know that they're supportive of bakeries like that. Um, and so it makes it very hard. Publicans got a great model because they do some bread for themselves and they sell it out the front door. And I think that works. And um, I haven't been to Mindy's yet. But, yeah, I think it's great that uh, uh, in this time and, and bakers are increasingly hard to find what I did 30 years ago. I could never do again because, you know, people worked a lot. Now people just don't don't want to work that hard. You know, they see it as hard work instead of rewarding work. Yeah. Um, so. But yeah, I think the retail thing is great. I hope it keeps going. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm going to ask you three questions. The first question is, tell me one thing that you love. Food-wise? Anything-wise. <laughs> oh, that's. I, I thought it was food-related, and now actually... Fine, it's fine. Um, well, I love pizza, actually, but, um, you know, if I really... If I had to pick between two things to do, if I didn't work again, it would be either detail cars or make bread. Um <laughs> That would be it. Or maybe open a shop that does both because <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's detailing cars has been a passion hobby of mine. And it's, it's kind of like making bread. You can't, you can't rush it. Um, you can't 
be off. You really have to pay attention to what you're doing. And so those, if I had somewhere to bake bread, which I have two bakeries, but I don't have anywhere to bake bread. If I, if I go bake bread in my one bakery uh, in the West Loop, I'm in the way. Yeah. And so if I could make bread, if my kitchen was set up, I would do it every day. I tried to make bread. It's funny during COVID. And, you know, I mean, I'm used to 100 pounds of flour, 30 pounds of starter, salt. And now I'm, I'm one pound of flour. I can't figure out teaspoons. And I, I, it was, it wasn't good at all. It was like I was frustrated because um, I need yeah. to work in bigger batches. So, um, but those would be the two things I really love to do. I love that. I love the detail cars. I think those things are, I think they're consistent though. Yeah, they are. They are. Secondly, um, tell me one thing that you cannot live without in the kitchen. In my kitchen or any kitchen? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I would say tomato-based sauce. Oh. You know, if I go a couple of days without something with uh, tomato sauce on it, I, I start to, you know, shake. I like that. And do, and do you make your own tomato sauce? And how do you do it? N- no, it's just all 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 in my, my restaurant. So I like again. That's the thing about me not being a chef is I don't make anything. But when I taste it, I have the suggestions of what it should be. Like gotcha. in our pizza sauce, I tried to copy my dad's old recipe. I had it. But I added to it. I added a little bit of Calabrian chili because pizza is very rich. You need some something to, to, to get through that. And so um, those are the things that I do really well. Even though I can't make them, I know right. how to tweak them. So You know how to make them better. Yes, exactly. Last question. Tell me, if you can, about your all-time or one of your all-time favorite food-related experiences. I think my mom making... Uh, Spaghetti sauce when I was a kid is probably one, because it was an all-day event, um, and you had to get you had to be there the right time to get the meatballs before they went in the sauce and got cooked. I mean, they got pan-fried first, and if you didn't put your order in ahead of time, meaning hey, don't put them in yet, please, and you came, then they they got pan-fried and they were awesome. They had a crust on them, but if you didn't get there at the right time, I think it was around. If I didn't get back home by noon. And I lost out. So they would go in the sauce, get cooked for three hours with all the other meat. And uh, I have to say it's the best one. I still think some of your childhood memories like drive what you do today, though. That, oh, God, yeah. 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 That's just seems to me. Yeah, I should have learned how to do it because now um, uh, hopefully my sister and sister-in-law don't listen to this. But they, they, they try, but it's not the same. <laughs> That's our show this week. Special thanks to Rich Labriola of Stan's Donuts. Also, Ali Marati. You can always follow her work on the restaurant beat at chicagobusiness.com. Check our show notes for links to all the places we talked about. The Dining Table with David Mandelow is produced by Todd Manley at Crane's Audio Studio. Take a moment now to give us a rating and review because that's the best way for others to discover our conversations. I'm David Mandelow, tasting my way through Chicago, and I'll talk to you soon.